Well, good morning. morning. And it's good to be with you. And thanks to Annabelle for leading us so effectively in our act of worship. It was great to get all these facts that sober our minds and underline for us just what a debt of gratitude we owe to those who have gone before us. Thank you, Annabelle. Now, I'm going to read to you from Psalm 90. Psalm number 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass in the morning, though in the morning it springs up new. By evening, it's dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's bow for a moment in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we turn now to your word, we pray that you will give us an understanding of what you want to say to us this morning. Give us a sense of hearing your voice. And above all, Heavenly Father, we pray that we may be encouraged and blessed through having heard what you have to say to us. So, Father, open our hearts and our minds. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Psalm 90. It's a unique psalm. It's a unique psalm in different ways. The first thing is, and you probably gathered this as we went through it, it's a psalm of lament. <laughs> so that really cheers us up. It's a psalm of lament. But actually, it's, it's not the psalm of lament of an individual who's pouring out his heart to God and almost <laughs> calling God names because it gets sometimes in that way. But no, this is a psalm which is a lament of the people. It's the whole nation that are lamenting in this particular case. 
they're, yes, they're being honest with God, but they're, they're moaning about where they find themselves and, and they want to get some kind of answers. So it's a psalm of lament. But the second thing is, it's a psalm that was written by Moses. Now, we normally think of the psalms as the psalms of David or people of his time, the musicians and so on. But no, this was written by David. Sorry, by Moses. And that tells us that it was written many years before the rest of the psalms. And thirdly, just as Moses gave to us five books of law and gave it to the nation of Israel, so David has given five books of psalms to the nation. Psalm 1 begins the first book, and then Psalm 42, the second book, Psalm 73, the third book, and Psalm 90 begins the fourth book, and finally 107 begins the fifth book. And the positioning of Psalm 90 at the beginning of book 4 is quite significant. Because what it does is it takes the reader and the hearer right back in history. It comes immediately after, naturally, Psalms 88 and 89. But these two Psalms are actually questioning the future of the dynasty, the reign of David, King David. They're questioning that. And so Psalm 90 is placed here at this very strategic position to remind the nation that God's purposes for them didn't begin with David. But they reach back into their history, to the times of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. Back to the time of the exile. Back to the time when God brought his people out of Egypt, when he redeemed them from the slavery under Pharaoh. So he's, he's asking them to go right back and think of the journey that the nation had through the wilderness and eventually settling in the promised land. At various stages in the history of, uh, of Israel, they needed to be reminded of just how God had worked in their lives and in their history and how much they owed to God. To be reminded how deep and how strong were the foundations of their faith. Today we're remembering and being taken back in history to what we owe to so many, many people. And we're remembering them. Not only those who gave their lives, but those who were injured and those who are still bearing the scars of bereavement. And here in this psalm, the nation is being taken back to remember to remember that God has promised to protect them. God's promised to provide for them. God's promised to point the way forward for them. And you know, that's something that we need to be reminded of. We need to be able to think back in our experience and remember those who mean something very special to us. Those who were there for us when we needed them. And we have times in our experience when, we, when we, we question the reality of our faith. 
And we ask, we ask the deeper questions of life. Why is this particular thing happening to me? Why am I going through this circumstance? What have I done to deserve this? Why am I in this situation? These are the things, these are the questions that flow through our minds and make us stop and think. And for us, the reminders of our faith lie not only in the purposes of the Old Testament or the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's all to do with the the birth, the life, the death, the, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. But that is all founded and based in New Testament, in Old Testament theology. And we need to be able to go back in and learn from both the Old and the New Testament because it's an ever-flowing picture beginning in the book of Genesis and leading right on and will only come to its final consummation when Revelation is fulfilled. So this is the bedrock of our Christian faith. We can put it in the the words of the lovely hymn, Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? Will your anchor hold in the straits of fear? Will your anchor hold in the floods of death? Will your eyes behold the morning light, the city of gold, the harbour bright? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure where the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move grounded, firm and deep in the Saviour's love. But before we go more deeply into the psalm, we need to think about the author. I have mentioned that it was Moses. And Moses' life was built up, if you can use that phrase, built up of three spans of 40 years. Number one, he was somebody. (coughs) There he was, living in the palace of the king, the adopted son of the king's daughter. Number two, he was nobody. Living in the desert, looking after his father-in-law's sheep. And then number three, he was God's body. Because God called him to rescue the people of Israel from the oppression and slavery of Egypt. And he became part of God's plan for that rescue mission. And that formed a major part, that 40-year stretch, in the history of the nation. And most scholars believe that it was near the end of that 40 years that Moses sat down and penned this psalm. And he was writing it from a heart full of experience and of reality of life. He'd been through so much. He was someone who'd seen it all. The ups and downs of life. The good times and the bad times. He had riches and he had poverty. Joy and pain. Success and failure. He'd experienced it all. And because of that, he was perfectly equipped to write this psalm. So let's come to the psalm. And like other things we've been talking about this morning, it's in three sections (laughs) he must have been a good Baptist I think to put this down in three sections (laughs) anyway the first section is verses 1 to 6 and then we've got verses 7 to 11 and then we've got 12 to 17 
And you know, we can, to help us visualise what this psalm, the, the direction it's going, we can think of a letter U. It starts off in a high, and then it goes down into the trough, and then it comes back in a triumphant way. So we're going to go through these three stages. As we've noted, the two previous psalms, 88 and 89, that we're, obviously we haven't had time to read, but they've identified a growing disillusionment um, amongst the people regarding the kingdom and the reign of David. It's all beginning to fall apart. Has it had its day? Is it over? And of course, Moses has been there before David ever was. And to help to counteract the moaning and the disillusionment of the people, Moses has taken the people right back in history with the aim of re-establishing the foundations of their faith. And where better to go than right back to creation? And that's where he goes. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now we don't need to get hung up on the how and the when of creation. The Bible's not a scientific textbook. It doesn't set out to explain uh, how and when. But what it does do, Moses fixes our attention on the who and the why. And that's so important. I was at Lawrence Hill Academy a week ago, and we're giving out Gideon Testaments. And the kids, you know, <laughs> at the end of an assembly, they, they kind of get out fast enough, and they're all pushing past trying to get a testament. And one girl hurried past, and she said, I don't believe in creation. I believe in the Big Bang. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't say anything, because she was past. She was gone. But, you know, dare I say it, maybe she's right. The Bible doesn't tell us. The other bit that Moses writes about the six stages of creation all fit in with science and the scientists won't dispute that. The order of creation. Maybe here where he's using the, the picture of birth well, I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions. But here's the important thing and the most important thing about creation is Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God. That's it. Don't get hung up about anything else. God is the creator. He's the one that did it. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world. You are God. And he goes further than that. He says, and you've neither got beginning nor end. A thousand a thousand years are like a day in your sight. What does a day mean anyway? <laughs> a number of different interpretations of the word day in Genesis. And I can say to you when, in my day, we had no television. Now you're all saying, gosh, is he as old as that? <laughs> but you see the point, day, it's not, it doesn't need to be 24 hours. It doesn't need to be 12 hours as we talk day and night. You see, there's the scope. But the important thing is God. 
And then when he said that, and he's talked about the timelessness and the eternity and the, the wonder of God in all his glory, he says, but what is man? What is my man? And compared to God, we're nothing. The greatness of God, the smallness of man. It's all here in this psalm. And the time will come when we return to the earth, swept away in, in the sleep of death. So what is life all about? Why are we made? What is our purpose? Why are we here? Moses is actually asking one of the big questions of life. And it's asked today. Here's the answer. In creation, we learn a number of things. Genesis 1 verse 26. We are made in the likeness and image of God. And here we're beginning to get to the purpose of our being here. Because when we're made in the image and the, the, the purpose of God, we've got identity. We've got identity in God and in Christ. We're not here by chance, as some would tell us. We've a dignity. We've a self-worth. We've a security. We've a feel-good factor about ourselves because we're made in the image of God. That's wonderful. Think about that for a minute. You and I are made in the image of God. That gives us a standing. That gives us something Yes, to feel good about ourselves about. But the other side of that is that it also says how we should treat other people. And we need to remember that every one of us, no matter who we are, is made in the image of God. And we need to treat other people with dignity and with respect. But then the other thing that you can draw from that is that it brings to us a responsibility. How do we function in this world? I came across something that Tony Campolo has written. He says, the world is becoming dirty and ugly and it's time to do something about it. The air is being turned into smog, the rivers are polluted, toxic chemicals fill the soil, the the oceans have become garbage dumps and rubbish is piling up on the edges of our towns and cities. Oil spills pollute our beaches and chemical rain and expanding industry destroy our rainforest. Where's our responsibility gone? Because God gave man, that's you and me, the responsibility of looking after this beautiful earth and we failed. We failed miserably. So not only are we made in the image of God, and we've got a responsibility, but we're all, we also have the capacity to mirror our Creator. We have to reflect everything that is good about Him. We have a moral consciousness to guide our behaviour and our attitudes in everyday living. We're able to appreciate beauty. We're able to share emotions. And we have the capacity to worship and to love God. And remember, it was Moses who introduced the Ten Commandments to the nation. And at one time, they were learned by children at school. That doesn't happen nowadays. They established deeply ingrained principles 
of morality, of right and of wrong, and they contributed to the shaping of Western civilization. And many people today, even though they don't believe in God and don't believe in what we're talking about, they view these Ten Commandments as the highest summary of the kind of private and public morality needed for the ordering of a good society. But something else that Moses brings out here. He tells us that we have a responsibility and a duty to be in relationship with God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Let's dip for a minute into Moses' life and come with me to a situation in the wilderness. And Moses is looking after his father-in-law's sheep and suddenly he catches a glimpse of a bush that's burning but not being consumed up. And like any natural, inquisitive person, he moves towards it. And as he gets nearer, the voice comes to him. Moses, don't come any closer. Take your shoes from off your feet and be quiet for a moment. And then God outlines to Moses what his plan is for him for the next years. What we've referred to earlier about leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he goes through that and he spells it out. And then he says to Moses, Don't be afraid, for I am with you. What tremendous words to hear from the God of heaven, the creator God. I am with you. These words not only came to Moses, but they came to various others of the prophets down through the ages. They came to the disciples. And listen, they come to you and me this morning. Because that's the teaching of the word of God. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. And so, as we struggle with all the various things that life throws us at us, and we have questions that range through our minds, and we struggle to fathom a lot of it, here's the words that come for us this morning. Lo, I am with you always. He's sitting right alongside you. He's holding your hand. He's guiding you. He won't desert you. Why do we need to worry about Brexit? Or Indy too? <laughs> God says, Lo, I am with you always. Our God is in control. Right, we need to move on. That's only, that's only section one. We're still in the high with all that Moses has been praising God about. Well, look, let's go into the next bit, and this is where it gets a wee bit. Uh, we're moving into the trough. Um, the people are moaning. They're fed up with what's going on. Not an uncommon situation. 
And in fact, again, the scholars would tell us that a lot of this actually can refer back to a very particular incident in the history of Israel. It's back in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And what's happening is the children of Israel are travelling and uh, they're moving from Mount Hor and they're going via Edom to the Red Sea. But they're moaning. They're fed up with everything that's going on. They're fed up with the, the boredom of the journey. They're fed up with the food. They're fed up with the, the water. They're fed up with Moses. They're just on a total downer. Well, so was God with them. And God said, I've had enough of this. And so God sent in amongst them snakes. And the snakes began to bite them and poison them. And quite a number died. <laughs> and I'll tell you, there's nothing quite like that to bring you to your senses when things really go wrong and you don't know the way out of it. And so they cried to Moses. Come on, Moses. <laughs> look, look, we're sorry. We're sorry we're moaning. We're sorry we're being rotten people. But, you know, help us out of this. Pray to your God. Pray to God. Ask him to deliver us. And God says, right, okay. What I want you to do, I want you to make a brass serpent. And I want you to put it up in a place where everybody can see it. And everyone who looks to it will be cured and saved from these other snakes. And that's exactly what happened. But then I want, to f I want you to fast forward with me into the Gospel of John and there's a man come furtively in the night to Jesus and he's discussing with him some of these problems of life that we all wrestle with and then Jesus said to him just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And Jesus was referring to his future death. He was referring to the time when he would be crucified. But for a purpose. That when people looked to the cross and when people admitted their own unworthiness and their weakness and their failure, when they looked to the cross they would find salvation. And you know, that's the glorious message of the gospel today. And remember I said that the whole story began in Genesis and it's worked its way right through. Well, here's, the ins here's a an example of it. The children of Israel and being brought to a situation where salvation was offered to them. And that same salvation from our sin is offered to every one of us today the Son of Man was lifted up that we might be saved. So we've got to a point where we've been in the, the high and then we've gone down into this trough but actually it's worked out for the benefit of the people. And then as we go into section 3 listen to them. 
Verse 14, relent, O Lord. Satisfy us in the morning. Make us glad. May your deeds be shown. May the favour of the Lord your God rest on us and establish the work of our hand. That's where the people are. They're coming back up out of the trough and they're coming back to the high place, recognising who God is and how much they owe to God. But what is the challenge for us today? I want you to come with me to Second Peter chapter 3. And here's what it says. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the first stage. God is calling everyone to repentance. That's the beginning of the journey on the Christian life. Coming to repentance and experiencing salvation. But then in verse 11 of 2 Peter 3, he poses the question, what kind of people ought you to be? And that's the challenge for us in 2019. And it raises the question, do you believe that the kingdom of God is here now? We often think that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is for the future, and so it is. And the, f- the finality of the kingdom of heaven will be revealed one day. But right now, the kingdom of heaven is here with us. And you and I are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we are meant to be living out kingdom models. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was the guy who was the tax collector and he'd made a fortune out of tricking other people and cheating them. But when he came to Jesus, and he came to Jesus for tea, two things happened. Jesus brought salvation to Zacchaeus that day And Zacchaeus experienced forgiveness, he experienced peace, he experienced eternal life, and he was into the kingdom of heaven. But what did he do? He said, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody anything, sorry, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times. What was he doing? He was demonstrating the kingdom of heaven. Transformation had taken place in his life. And now he was going to show to everybody round about that the salvation that he's got was real, it was meaningful, and he was now no longer a citizen of Palestine but he was now also a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and that meant demonstrating what the kingdom of heaven was all about. What sort of people ought you to be? Here was a corrupt tax collector 
suddenly become a kingdom bearer. I'm going to draw to a conclusion. And I'll leave that challenge there. But I want you to do something. <laughs> I'd like you to put your hand up and wiggle your fingers just to make sure they're all working. Right? Now I want you to put them into a fist and keep it tight. Now careful. Then I want you to move your hand and put it on your chin. Remarkable. 70% have put it on your cheek, not your chin. (laughs) And what's the lesson? The lesson is this. People don't listen to what you say. They do what you do. Kingdom ministry. Kingdom people. Amen.